0: It's been a few years ago now, but my wife organized a, a trip for our family, um, she and I and our girls, and then I think my mother-in-law and father-in-law came along on this trip uh, to kind of a, a uh, um, tourist kind of thing. And I know that Wichita is one of the great tourist attractions that you think of, like this is where people come from all over the the world to like go to tourist stuff. But there is a really cool thing here, kind of within close driving distance. We have a salt mine not too far from here. And uh, some of you have been there. You can go down into the salt mine. There's some amazing tours you can do, really kind of cool stuff. I mean, uh, uh, things that they store down there that have national importance, just really cool stuff. And so my wife had arranged for us to go take a tour of this place. And uh, I didn't think much of it. It seemed just like a normal day trip for the family. We get there and they start to explain to us what the tour is gonna be like. And they say, now we're gonna take you 650 feet underground. And I begin to think, when do they put you underground? They put you underground when you're dead. And I think, I'm probably not gonna live through this. And it's not just six feet under, we're going 650 feet under, you know? And I always knew I was afraid of heights. I did not know until now that I was afraid of depths. <laughs> this is a whole other phobia, right? So, you know, we, we, we get through this elevator ride and it's a long elevator ride to go down 650 feet below ground. And we get down there into this uh, mine and uh, it was the summertime, so it's very warm outside, but it's cool down there. And that by itself is wigging me out. Like the temperature is completely different down there. That's not right, you know? And we get down there and I'm starting to feel the mind closing in on me. Like I know I'm not gonna make it through this. Like I came down and I'm not going back up. I feel it, you know, I know. And my wife says, let's take a selfie. (laughs) So, So when you look at this picture, you should know that her smile is genuine. Like this is for real. This is my wife's real smile. In case you're wondering, this is not my real smile. This is the pasted on smile, like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to my death before this whole thing is over, but we're taking a selfie, so I got to do something, right, kind of smile. It was not my favorite trip. People love that tour, and it's really cool, but I have to be honest with you, there was sort of a low-level anxiety for me the whole time. And I feel that whether it's going on, you know, one of these mine trips, or we've been to the caves in Branson, same sort of thing, you kind of, it's just very unusually different. The thing, though, that's really interesting is that in just about all these tours, whether you're in your caves or a mine or anything like that, at some point, they always want to do this. Like, it's part of their tour. At some point, they always want to turn out all the lights. (laughs) And they do that because you never actually, for most of us, we're not used to experiencing complete darkness. Not true, complete, zero light Darkness. And they tell you on these tours, you're going to put your hand in front of your face. You will literally not know that it's there. It will be disorienting because your brain knows your hand is in front of your face, but your eyes will not see anything. And they turn off those lights. And I don't know if you've been in one of these tours, but isn't it true that that is a freaky kind of darkness? We're not used to that. Even when we go outside at night and it's dark, or even if all the lights are off in our house, there's still some light bleed over. So it's not completely dark. But in that moment when there's nothing but darkness, that is freaky. But I think that it's even more something that we can all, some of us have never taken those kind of tours, but everybody in this room understands there is an emotional darkness that's kind of freaky that we kind of know what the darkness is like because we've been through some difficult challenges, we've been through some stuff, but there is that moment where the darkness gets so bad emotionally that it is disorienting and weird. By the way, I would say that, that in, emotionally, I would say that darkness creates desperation. I, I was afraid of the dark as a kid, right? And I learned, obviously, when I'm six, 650 feet underground and they turn off the lights, I'm afraid of the dark as an adult, apparently. <laughs> But isn't there sort of a desperate feeling that sort of wells up in you when you can't see anything? And as, as a child, one of the things that was clear to me, even, you know, as I was sort of developing an awareness of this as a, as a young person, that in the dark... The things that are there that are good things, you can't see, so you're not aware of the good things that are there. And it's funny that things that are not there become very real to you. When we, when I was a little kid, we lived in a house that was over 100 years old, and it had all the creaks and rattles that are typical of a house at that age. And it was amazing what kind of monsters and aliens and all sorts of things I could imagine that were in my room that weren't there, but that's something about the darkness. It's very easy to forget You know, all of us have had this experience as parents, right? You're sitting with your toddler, you're putting them to bed, and you're, you know, five foot away from them. But the room is dark, and your toddler is convinced you have left because they can't see you there. But isn't it amazing? We can lose track of what is there, and suddenly what isn't there can become overwhelming. We shouldn't forget how powerful darkness can be. You know, we think about the plagues. And God is extricating his people out of Egypt. And we remember the the very memorable plagues, the frogs and the locusts. How could you forget the frogs and the locusts? I mean, those are very powerful plagues. But don't forget that one of the plagues that God sent was darkness. Then the Lord said to Moses, lift your hand toward heaven and the land of Egypt will be covered with a darkness so thick you can feel it. I'm talking to the person in this room. Maybe it's you or maybe it's just somebody in your circle. Maybe it's somebody that you know. Maybe it's your spouse Maybe it's one of your kids. But somebody, either you or somebody that you know is going through a darkness that is so, so thick they can feel it. 2020 was a, such a tough year. And we went through so many losses in 2020. But I've, I've often said that 2020 was a year of loss. 2021 is a year where it's become concrete for us. Isn't it true that there was a sort of emotional numbness that kind of took place in 2020? The chaos of it, the, the just sort of the completely disorienting unfamiliarity that we had with what was going on in 2020, there was a sort of numbness. But as 2021 has started to, you know, we have got into this year and we've gotten most of the way through the year, it's, it's like some of those things, some of those losses are becoming more real to us, more concrete. I was talking to a Another psychologist, we were, uh, my wife and I were doing some filming for a new program that we're developing here at New Spring, and we were interviewing psychologists, and we were talking about grief. And um, so I've known this particular psychologist for a long time, and I said, we want to talk about the numbness that people feel when they go through loss. And he said, oh, you want me to talk about how it's so necessary? And I said, no. <laughs> I don't tell people it's necessary. I tell people it's normal, and I tell people it will go away over time but I don't know about whether we should say that it's necessary. I've never thought that it's necessary. And he said, well, then you're a better man than I am. He said, so you're telling me that you go to the dentist and you tell the dentist, no, Nova came for me, buddy. I wanna feel everything you're doing. Every single thing, I wanna feel it. I said, no, of course I don't do that. he's like, right, because the pain that you would go through in that dental chair would be overwhelming. So the numbness is necessary. Then over time you go home and, and as that transition happens, you begin to feel some of that pain and you take some Tylenol or whatever, but the pain is bearable at that time. He's like, that is what the numbness does. When we go through profound loss, there is a time at which the pain would be unbearable. It would be overwhelming, not something that we could process. And then as time goes on we actually get a little distance from the loss, but the loss becomes more concrete and we begin to feel the actual pain of that loss. And I think that's what a lot of us are going through in 2021. Why is darkness, why does it cause desperation? Well, I think for, for one thing, darkness disorients. That's the weird thing about when they turn off all the lights and there's literally no light there is that you don't know which way you're pointed anymore. It's really weird. You have no, no idea which way you're pointed and you don't know... Like, you don't want to stand up, you wouldn't walk, you wouldn't do anything, because you don't know where you are. And, and, and we could say it this way, we could say that darkness demobilizes. That I'm not going to move because I don't know where I'm at, and I don't know what I would be moving toward. And that's actually something that we see very often with major depression. One of the things that we we look at as a huge earmark of major depression is that there is this sort of, there is this sort of immobilization, there is this sort of... Um, freezing that takes place, that just doing regular things, doing the regular tasks of life becomes too much. Getting up out of bed, um, just taking care of the day's normal errands, just the regular things become a mountain that's very, very difficult to climb. And that struggle is very real, that there's this sort of immobilization that happens because I'm living in a darkness and I don't don't know where I am or where I would be going even if I did go somewhere. As a result of this, some people will begin to feel like maybe maybe I don't really want to go on. Or maybe it would be better if I wasn't living. Maybe it would be better if I wasn't alive. Some people will even begin to start making plans to do something about that. And you say, now, Jonathan, how on earth do you think it's appropriate for us to bring this topic up in church? I think church is where we should be talking about this. See, God created life with inherent value. And anytime there is any kind of devaluing of human life, that is an agenda of Satan. Always, 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 wherever human life is devalued, that is an agenda of Satan. So if we ever have an opportunity to talk about how important it is to deal with the challenge of not wanting to go on and even thinking about not continuing to be alive and maybe doing something to, to cause that, like killing myself, or committing suicide, if ever there was some, some place that we should talk about it, we should be handling that at the altars of the churches of Jesus Christ in the United States of America, this is where we should be talking about this. I've stood by too many caskets of people who have made a decision to take their own life, and I want to tell you what breaks my heart is knowing that at some point the person whose casket I'm standing beside was in one of these chairs in this room and listened to me speak. I want you to at least hear once from me why it's so important that you not go there. And that's one of the things that we're going to talk about. How do we deal with that darkness? As a matter of fact, the, the whole talk is oriented around this. How do you handle the darkness so thick that you can feel it? And I might have somebody in this room saying, you know what, Jonathan, I've actually never been where you're talking about. Like, what you're talking about is something that I've never experienced. I just want you to know that even if you have an experience that somebody that you know... I'm not even going to tell you somebody that you know has experienced it. I'm going to tell you that somebody that you know is experiencing it right now. I could have brought in statistics, but this talk was long as it, as it is. But let me just let you know from the statistics, somebody in your circle is going through not feeling like they can go on and trying to figure out whether they should. In order to really address this, we need to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to talk about a character in the Bible who really went through this himself. The guy's name was Elijah. And in order to really understand what happened to Elijah, I've got to tell you a little bit of the backstory. I need you to give me a little bit of, of latitude so I can get a running start at this thing. What you need to know about Elijah is that Elijah was a prophet of God. And there were two important God roles that leaders played in this time in Israel. There was the priest and then there was the prophet. Now the priest's job was to represent the people to God. Now after Jesus died on the cross and Jesus became our priest, we don't need a priest anymore, but at the time that was a role that was played and this person represented the people to God. The prophet, on the other hand, represented God to the people. Scripture was not available in its entirety, so it was very critical that God be able to send direct messages to his people, and he would do that through the prophets. But it wasn't an easy job, because very often the message that God would have the prophet deliver to his people was not particularly popular. And so they would go through a very difficult season. And Elijah, for, for Elijah, it was especially that way, just because of the time that he was assigned to be a prophet. When he was a prophet, he was dealing with King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. King Ahab was the worst king Israel ever had. And that's not my judgment. That's not Jonathan's assessment. That is God's assessment. We know from the scripture that Ahab was the worst king Israel ever had. And Jezebel, scripture says, is worse than he was. There's a reason we don't name our daughters Jezebel. So he has to deal with that. Now, the, the, the issue with Ahab and Jezebel, they're... The, the people of God, the Israelites, they often had this issue of they understood that the God that we serve, the God that you and I serve is the true God. They understood that, but they would get magnetically drawn often into serving other gods that were not, I, I used the word God there with a small G. They weren't real gods. They were gods that people groups had invented and they would begin to serve them because there would be some fringe benefit in serving those gods. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. At the time in the ancient world, there was a God for this and a God for that and a God for rain and a God for crops and all that sort of thing. So there was this God named Baal. And Baal, now get this, see how this strikes you in 2021 America. Baal was the God of sex and prosperity, Now, the thing about it is, if you want my opinion, I believe that the Israelites knew deep down in their heart that God was the true God, but worshiping Baal had fringe benefits that God did not allow. And so there was always this sort of hedging back and forth. And the thing about it was Ahab and Jezebel were especially Jezebel were very forward in the worship of Baal. As a matter of fact, Jezebel was so into Baal worship, she started her own seminary. She opened it up, the first seminary of Jezebel. Right, you can come there and get your degree and, and become a, and, and become a minister for Baal. And she had 450 graduates already out there doing their thing. Right, and so. Now we've got Ahab, who's pretty much just a puppet for Jezebel. We've got Jezebel, who's running this whole Baal worship complex. And we've got Elijah, who is trying to deliver God's message to both Ahab and Jezebel, who don't want to hear it, and delivering God's message to the people of Israel that Baal worship is a bad thing and you need to follow the true God. And this is the battle that he fights during his ministry. Well, God is trying very hard to get Ahab's attention. One of the things he does is he stops the rain. And of course, in in this agricultural society, you stop the rain, you have a major, major problem. There's no food being imported from anywhere else. Once you stop the rain, you don't have any food. And so Elijah tells Ahab there ain't going to be any rain. Ahab doesn't like that very much. And there's a season where Ahab and Jezebel would take Elijah out if they could, but they can't find him. God has taken Elijah and positioned him by a little body of water, by a little brook. And this is the kind of provision that Elijah experiences in his life. God causes birds to bring bread and meat to Elijah to feed him by that brook. So he has water and he has meat and he has bread. Now it's kind of gross, the birds bringing your food, but it's cool. And then later on, God will move him from the brook Cherith and move him over uh, to a, a widow's house where he's gonna be supernaturally provided for there. Now, by the way, I can't make this, I I can't say this for certain, but I think I can make a good biblical case for this. I think what happened was Ahab got wind of the fact that Elijah was by the brook Cherith and he went over there to go take Elijah out. And I think it was at that point that God took Elijah and moved him over to the widow at Zarephath's house from the brook Cherith. Now, the reason I believe that is because later uh, in the story, you're gonna have somebody that Elijah encounters and and Elijah's gonna say, go tell Ahab, I wanna see him. Because I want to tell him it's going to rain. And he says, listen, I don't want to go tell Ahab that you want to see him. Because as soon as I go tell him that, he's going to come try to find you. And God will have spirited you away somewhere else. So it makes me think that this has happened before. That somebody has told Ahab he's over there at the brook Cherith. And Ahab goes over there and doesn't find him. Because he's now over at the widow of Zarephath's house. And Ahab has a cow. Right? So I think this has happened before. So you should know that Elijah has always been under threat of death from Ahab and Jezebel. Okay. So now he's at this widow's house. What happens there? Well, I could go into more detail, but I went a little overtime last night, so I'm gonna try to condense this. But what you should know is that because of this lack of rain, this widow has run out of food. She doesn't have any food left, nothing else. She's literally, the Bible says, it's a very, very vivid picture. She's gathering kindling so that she can cook one last meal for her and her son. And after that, they're gonna die. They got nothing left. And when the prophet shows up, Elijah says, God asked me to ask you to make me a little bread and, and, uh, and water. And she says, I can't do that. I've got our very last meal I'm fixing for my son and my, myself. And after that, we, we got nothing left. This is the last that we have and then we're gonna die. And Elijah said, God has told me uh, for you to make a little bit for me first and then you can have the rest and then God is gonna miraculously provide for you so that those raw ingredients are gonna continue to exist. Even though you're gonna think you're reaching into the bottom of the barrel, there's always gonna be more until this is over with. And God did that. So I want you to think about what Elijah's life has been like. He's he's prayed to God. God has done all these incredible things, right? He's he's provided for him by the brook Cherith. He's provided for him with uh, with, with this widow, and he's seeing how this has been provided for with food. By the way, shortly thereafter, the widow's son dies. This is a society where there's no social security. There's no social support. Her whole future hinges on her son growing up and supporting her. And now not only has she lost the son whom she loves and the son whom she has this incredible attachment to, but her future is gone. And the the prophet of God, Elijah, prays that God would restore to life this dead boy, and God does. There's not a whole lot of cases of resurrection in the scripture, but this is a very interesting situation where Elijah prays that God will literally bring this boy who has died back to life, and God does. Comes a time when, Elijah realizes he's going to have to take his case to the people. Can't continue to take his case to Ahab and Jezebel. They're not listening. So he's going to take his case to the people. So what he does, he sets up a tournament, a really a, a showdown at Mount Carmel with all these prophets of Baal, the 450 first graduating class of the seminary of Jezebel. They all show up at the, at the mountain, and, and here's, here's Elijah. And they, he says, here's what we're going to do. We're both going to build a burnt offering Uh, uh, altar. We're going to put stones together. We're going to build up these altars. We're going to put wood on them. We're going to put a bull on each of these um, altars. And what we're going to do is we're both going to pray for God to send down fire from heaven. Now, if Baal's really God uh, and you pray to God, he ought to be able to send down fire from heaven and burn up the sacrifice. Uh, And then I'm going to pray and ask my God to send down fire on the sacrifice and we'll see what happens. And they all agree to this. And he says, now here's the deal. Uh, you guys, there's a bunch of you, 450 of y'all. I expect it's going to take y'all a lot longer to pray than it's going to take me. So I'm going to go ahead and let y'all go first. You, you can go do your thing, right? So they, they have this whole ritual fest. They, you know, they're, they're jumping around and dancing and singing and all kinds of stuff. Eventually, they realize it's not working for them. In the ancient world, there was an idea that the gods, small g, would respond to you if you caused yourself pain, so they begin to cut themselves with knives. The Bible says they cut themselves with knives until the blood flowed to get Baal's attention. Nothing's happening. Elijah's a crusty old guy. He's got a sense of humor. He starts to mess with him a little bit. He says, uh, you know, maybe you're, uh, maybe you're God. Maybe Baal went on vacation. I'm just saying. Like maybe Baal's at, Va- at Disney World, and that's why he can't hear you, you know? And then he says, you know, or maybe Baal went to sleep, and he's just a real deep sleeper. And so, you know, you're, you're, you, maybe you ought to sing a little louder, because sometimes it's hard for people to wake up, so maybe Baal's asleep. And, then he, and this one is really crazy. If it wasn't in the scripture, I wouldn't believe it. But then he says, perhaps your God has visited the celestial toilet. I mean, maybe he's been in there quite a while and just hasn't heard you, and he needs to come out of the bathroom before he will recognize that you're trying to get his attention. And so this thing goes on for quite a while. Eventually, Elijah says, all right, we've had enough of this. And then he does something really weird. He digs a trench around the altar, and he has them pour 12 buckets of water on the sacrifice. Now, I'm no barbecue expert, but it's been my experience that wet wood does not light easily. Why on earth would Elijah have them pour water on the sacrifice is so important. Elijah wants them to understand this is no magic show. There's no trickery here. If fire actually comes down from heaven, it is the real deal, right? And then he prays a very simple, short prayer. And God sends down fire from heaven that is so powerful that it consumes the sacrifice, it consumes all that wet wood, it consumes all the water that's in the trench. And now this, this next part, God's going to have to explain to me someday because I do not get it. But it actually even consumed the stones that the altar was built with. What that tells me is that God just left a scorched mark on the earth where all that used to be. I'm telling you all this because I want you to know what Elijah's life has been like, for one thing. And secondly, what has happened whenever Elijah has prayed for anything. When Elijah has prayed for things, they've happened, even when they're miraculous things. Elijah prays for God to send back rain, and God sends back rain. Really interesting thing, whenever Elijah tells Ahab, hey, look, it's going to rain, you're going to want to get back to town before you get stuck out here in the mud— God gives him a supernatural power and Elijah runs ahead of Ahab's chariots. I mean, that's, a fa- I mean, I, I, that's Olympic running right there. He runs right ahead of, of the chariots and gets back to Jezreel. And this is where we pick up the story. So here's what happens. The Bible says that when Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he killed all the prophets of Baal. After that showdown on the mountain, Elijah kills all 450 of those prophets with the the consent and the agreement of all the people of Israel because they've just seen what God has done. By the way, this is a theme in scripture that when God shows up and does something miraculous, it is amazing how quickly people will get on board with God, but it is also amazing how quickly they will forget. Matter of a few days, and they're back to where they were before. And I I definitely think Elijah had seen that. But anyhow, Ahab gets home, tells Jezebel, because again, Jezebel's the dominant person in this marriage. And Jezebel sends this message to Elijah. May the God strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. I just want to emphasize once again, this is not new. Elijah has always been under threat of death from Ahab and Jezebel. This is not new. And yet, for Elijah... Something snapped. Check this out. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Before we talk about this journey that he goes on, it's important for us to take a moment and stop and say that it is important to understand. Here you have Elijah. He's been dealing with this okay, and now suddenly there's a snap. And one of the things is family members, the the people that you love, you need to know this about them. Just because they've handled something this far does not mean they will always be able to handle it. Just because they've been able to handle the stress and the strains and the challenges of what they're going through up to today does not mean that they will always be able to handle it the same way. One of the things that you've heard my dad talk a lot about was the sort of crisis that he went through in 2010. He went through a sort of uh, physical and emotional breakdown. And I remember the day, I was at a staff meeting, I was new on staff here, I'd been here for about six months and I had just bought a car. And I told my dad about this car that I bought. And he had told me the day before, a couple days before, that he wanted to take a ride with me. So I stayed after staff meeting um, and was going to invite him to take a ride with me. I was just trying to make small talk with him as, we were, you know, as the meeting was over. And I noticed that he wasn't even looking at me. I could tell he was somewhere else. And I knew we had a problem. And within a short period of time, we were trying to get him help because he was really not in a good place. But can I tell you what was hardest for our staff? in that situation what was hardest for our staff is when you've known somebody who's always done so well at so many things and handled the stress so well with so much style someone who's always been the adult in the room when things have come up suddenly you see them kind of snap and you wonder how is it feasible that they were so good a week ago, and now they're not good, it doesn't make any sense. Please understand, this is human nature, that we can muster the power to bear up underneath an overwhelming load for a season, but there will come a time where that overwhelming load will finally catch up to us, and we will not be able to carry it anymore. And that's what Elijah was dealing with. He had been dealing with a crushing load, and finally, the last few fibers of the rope began to break, and now he's leaving Israel and going to Beersheba. Now, What do I mean by he's leaving Israel? Well, it's important for you to kind of know a little bit about what's happening in Israel at this time. Israel starts off as a united kingdom under King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And then King Solomon's son, who was a moron, did a bunch of things that, He sort of followed on his dad's rules and then made it even worse. And what happened was it caused a revolt in Israel, and the Israel split into what we call the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is Israel, the southern kingdom is Judah. You can see that right here. Here's Israel, it's on the north side, and here's Judah, it's on the south side. So what's important to know is that prophets typically located themselves in either the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. There were seasons where there was a different prophet for each kingdom. But what you need to know is that Elijah is a prophet for the northern kingdom. So Mount Carmel happens right over here, and then when he and Ahab end up back in Jezreel, they're over here, in Israel, where his ministry has been, where God has called him to be. Now what he does is he actually goes down to um, Beersheba, right, which is where? It's in Judah. He t- Look at how far he goes out of Israel, which is the sphere of his calling. And he goes down into Judah, which is not where God has called him to be. And in Beersheba, look at what he does. He tells his servant, all right, you stay here, I'm going on. Now this is huge. Depression and the emotional journey that we go on in major depression inspires us to isolate. And what I want you to know is that isolating will put you on the fast track to a darker place. See, there was something within Elijah's spirit that says, I need to be alone right now. And there's nothing wrong with solitude. But there is a time when we want to be alone because we're going through pain that's so deep that it just feels like we need to deactivate everything and just freeze. But the thing is, what we get rid of by losing that support system is the one thing that could really help us in that moment. I'm talking to guys in this room. You have a little bit of a Superman complex and you go to a dark emotional place, and it is in those moments where you actually push your wife away, when she is the person who wants to be there for you. And you would tell me, Jonathan, if I were to tell her the emotional struggle that I'm in, I would be letting her down. No, you would be letting her in. That's a very different thing. You don't want to get rid of your support system. You don't want to isolate. But then after Elijah does that, check this out. Elijah then goes on by himself and he goes even south or farther than Judah. He gets out of the whole place, all of what used to be Israel proper. He's gone from all of that and he's in the wilderness. The Bible says when he gets to the wilderness, he finds a solitary broom tree. So this one tree alone by itself is symbolic to Elijah. It's like him. You're going to hear him over and over again say, it's just me. It's just me. He sees one tree by himself and he's like, isn't that a picture of me? And he goes, sits under the the tree and prays what? That he might die. Now it's so easy to just read past that. Elijah prayed that he might die. But can we stop for a second and say, what has happened so far when Elijah has prayed for things? What what, what has happened when Elijah prayed for God to restore a young man back to life? He's come back to life. What's happened when, when Elijah prayed for God to send down fire from heaven? fire came down from heaven. What do you think Elijah thinks is going to happen when he prays for God to kill him? I feel certain that he believed that God was going to kill him. This was not a melodramatic moment. This was Elijah saying, I don't want to live anymore. He's trying to commit suicide via God. I've had enough. Take my life for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. And I wish I had time to get into this. But it's important to know that one of the pieces of the major depression complex that really leads a person down this road is the thought that I've made no difference, I've never been successful, I'm a failure, I've let people down. There is this shame that sets in and this beginning to look at oneself as though there. are unworthy. I'm beginning to tell myself I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy of love. I'm unworthy of of the position that I have. I begin to doubt that I even should have the job that I have. I begin to doubt that I should even have the family that I have. So much so that I begin to think that all of those things would be better if I wasn't there. And really, this is what Elijah is saying. Look, I'm no better than the others who came before me. I haven't been successful. Israel will be better without me. Then he laid down and slept under the broom tree. And again, my belief is he thinks he's not going to wake up. But as he was sleeping, and it's important to notice what happens here, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. Now, some people believe this angel is a a Christophany, a pre-incarnate version of, of Christ. I don't know whether that's true, but there is an angel there. It says, get up and eat. So Elijah looks around and sees that there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. He goes back to sleep. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Okay. This is what I think. I think that Elijah decides, well, he guess he's not going to put my lights out in my sleep. I guess I'm not going to die under this broom tree. He wants me to go to Mount Sinai. He wants me to go to the mountain of God. So there he'll kill me. Fine. If he wants to kill me on the mountain, that's where we'll do it. He comes to a cave where he spends the night, but the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, If I'm Elijah, I'm going, because you told me to come here. That's what I'm doing here. I don't think that's what God is asking. I think God is asking him to look inside and say, how did I get here? How did I get to the point that I'm sitting under this tree and asking God to die? How did I come to the point that I'm at this mountain, out of the sphere of my calling, away from my social support, away from what God has called me to do, and wanting to die? How did I get here? So Elijah, though, he has a prepared speech. He says, well, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And it's a speech. I know that because he repeats it multiple times. Then God says, okay, well, go out and stand before me on the mountain. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by. Now, what happens, there's a series of of amazing things things that happen that Elijah sees. The first thing is a a windstorm, a tornado, hits the mountain, and it was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. I mean, are we not just going down the list of natural disasters? Kind of feels to me like we are, right? But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. He went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, and and, and a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Well, we're going to talk in a minute about what the, what the storm meant. What does the earthquake mean? What does the storm mean? What does the fire mean? We'll, we'll get there in just a second. But Elijah still has his speech. He pulls it out of his pocket and reads it again. I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, and they've torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. Now, in a second, we'll break apart God's response, but let's just read it for right now. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. Where's the wilderness of Damascus? If you look at a map, Damascus is north of Judah, north of Israel, all the way up here. As a matter of fact, the map that I had earlier doesn't even have it on there. It's too far northeast. He went southwest and God's telling him to go northeast. There's a point here somewhere. And the point is there are beliefs and habits and thoughts, and behaviors that contribute to us getting to that place where we don't want to go on. Now, it is not the root cause necessarily because the thing about it is Elijah cannot fix the thing with Ahab. That is God's job. Just as you may not be able to fix the thing with your finances right now, or you may not be able to fix the thing with your marriage right now, or you may not be able to fix the thing uh, that you're going through with your, your career. But this is true. There are things that you can change about how you ended up at this place. And God's saying, you're gonna to have to go back the way you came. When you arrive there, I have a job for you to do. Anoint Hazael to be king of Aram, then anoint Jehu to be king of Israel, and then anoint Elisha from the town of abel Mahola to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve, very important, I'll preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. I have about eight minutes to try to pick apart God's response to a person who doesn't wanna go on. If you're taking notes, this wouldn't be a bad time to take notes. Before I get to God's response though, I do wanna mention one thing. One of the things that my wife and I try to watch for when we're dealing with people who are in crisis. There are some things with their physical health that we need to pay attention to. This is just a good little thing to to remember, code red. And that is when you're going through a a, a crisis, an emotional crisis, there's still a connection with with your physical body. So you need to be very careful about rest, exercise, and diet. All these three are very important, right? I talk to people who are going through a crisis and I'll ask them, how many hours of sleep are you getting a night? And they'll say four. That's not okay. That's not okay. You need to be getting seven, seven and a half hours of restful sleep a night. Some of you are saying, there's no way. If you're not getting seven and a half hours of restful sleep a night, you need to talk to your physician. You need to be able to get, if you're going through a crisis, you need to be able to get regular, consistent sleep. Exercise, when I say exercise, I'm not talking about weightlifting or strength training i mean if that's you then and you're able to do that then more power to you as you can see i'm quite the athlete um <laughs> i'm talking about regular everyday exercise. Take a power walk four times a week. You'll be amazed at what that will do for you in the middle of your crisis. If you're able to, to, to take a power walk, do that. Then the third thing is diet. We have a lot of stuff that are a lot of things that are put in front of us that are not healthy for us. And during a crisis, that's one of the times where we're most likely to get into unhealthy foods and unhealthy eating. So we really have to check that and make sure that we are taking care of our bodies. The Bible says the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So rest exercise and diet are three ways that we can immediately work on strengthening our body. Okay. So in the last little bit of time I have let's talk about God's messages to Elijah because there are several that are here in this story the first one is this it's not as bad as it seems right now why have I why why have I underlined right now when 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 you work with a suicidal individual when a clinician works with a suicidal individual one of the things that they're really wanting to make sure that they emphasize is that these thoughts and these feelings are momentary they come and they go what we do not want to do is put an action plan behind a momentary thought or momentary feeling, right? So what happens is in certain moments, the challenges that we're going through and the difficulties that we're going through, they will become so blown out of proportion. And and I'm not saying that they're not bad to start with, but what I am saying is they will tend to grow in our minds and our emotions and they'll get so blown out of proportion That in a moment, we'll begin to have some very negative thoughts, but it's important to understand that it is not as bad as it seems right now. To understand that we only have a small pixel of the overall picture. That God is doing something bigger than what I can see in the middle of this circumstance. It's not as bad as it seems right now. And, And What I would use to support that is God says, I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed his statue. Very interesting thought here, right? That over and over, Elijah says, I am the only one left. Do you hear that sort of momentary, it's the, it's the worst thing ever, I'm the only one left, there's nobody else, it's only me? And by the way, yet again, this is another feature of major depression that we begin to feel like I am, I have a pain that nobody else understands, that nobody else has been through, it's completely different for me, it's, a, it's at a worse level, it's unbearable, nobody could live through this, right? And yet God is saying, I want you to know you're not alone, there are others. And beyond all that, I think there's also a statement here about the difference that he's made. Because think about this, Elijah has over and over said, I've made no difference. I'm no better than my ancestors. I haven't done anything successfully. And yet, embedded in this statement is there are 7,000 people who have indirectly benefited from Elijah's influence because they've made a decision to follow the true God. Don't ever let Satan convince you that you haven't made a difference and that you don't yet have a difference to make in this world. Jeremiah 29 is a favorite chapter for many of us. A lot of us have little plaques around our house and things like that with Jeremiah 29, 11. It's a favorite verse, but one of the things that we often forget is that Jeremiah 29 is written to God's people who have been brought into exile in Babylon. It's not not a comfortable situation for them. They're crying out to the Lord because of this terrible situation that they're in. They're prisoners in Babylon. And God has basically told them, you're going to be there for a while. Read Jeremiah 29. That's what God says. You're going to be there for a while. There's going to be quite a while where you're going to have to cope with the challenge of being in Babylon. It is at that point that he then says, but I know the plans I have for you. There are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. And as a matter of fact, the word from which, the the word that gets translated plans here is the word from which we get the word machine. God is saying, I understand the machinery that I have in place, that I have already turning. The wheels are turning in the machinery for your hope and for your future. You don't see it right now, you're in darkness, so it's easier to not pay attention to what's going on behind the scenes. Just know that I do have those machines turning. And is not this what faith is about? The Bible says that faith is the evidence of what is not seen. It is when we are in darkness so thick that we can feel it, our choice to believe that God's machinery is at work for our future, that's what faith is. That's what faith is. So if I read this verse right, and I hope that I do, that means there are two statements, two messages that are always untrue for a believer. The first one is this, there's no future for me. And the second one is this, there's no hope for me. Did you know that in the world of psychology, we would say that these are two of the messages that are most prevalent in people who attempt suicide. I have no future. I have no hope. Isn't it interesting that we can go all the way back to the book of Jeremiah in the scripture and God is speaking to his children and saying, you always have a future. You always have a hope. And he's speaking to people who do not see it now. And that is why, you know, we talk about faith as though faith is some sort of lifestyle. Well, I'm, I'm a person of faith. No, 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 you're not a person of faith. You're a person who exists because faith says to me that even when I do not see my hope and my future, I am absolutely unmovable on the fact that I have a hope and I have a future because God is gonna provide that for me. Second message is this, if it were best for you not to be alive, I could have easily accomplished that. Now, I don't mean that when a person dies, they die because God has determined that it's best for them not to be alive. We could get into that in another message. People die because sin is in the world. They don't die because of their sin. They die because sin is in the world. Sin is ricocheting around our world. It causes all kinds of physical maladies. And the Bible is very clear that death happened because of sin. But Elijah's hung up on the idea that it's best for him to die. Is he not? Elijah has come to the conclusion that it would be best if I was not alive. And I think what God wants him to know is, if that were true, I could have made that happen. I went to Bible school, and I had a professor, I remember this very clearly, and he had all figured out the symbolism of the windstorm, and the symbolism of the fire, and the symbolism of the earthquake. There is no symbolism. What God is telling Elijah is, look at all the ways I could have taken you out could have taken you out with a tornado. I could have taken you out with an earthquake. I could have taken you out with a fire. And yet that still small voice comes to him. And what is the essence of the still small voice? The essence of the still small voice is to say, you're still here. And you're here for a reason. If you are still with us, it is because it is not time for you to not be with us. If you've been considering, I just want to speak very clearly to you if you've been considering suicide, my answer to you is it is not time. It is not time for you to not be with us. There will be a time where you won't be, unless the Lord comes back before, there will be a time where your body will give out and you will not be with us. But please do not hasten that timeline. It's not time yet. And then the third thing God says to Elijah is you can't stay here. Did you notice that? He says, get up and go back the way that you came. it's, It's clear that he's saying, You cannot just stay sitting under this broom tree praying for death. Like, that's not a long-term solution. Like, that's not going to work. And what I want to tell you, as both a person that has worked in counseling and pastoral counseling and all of that, I want you to know that whether we're talking about, if there's a person in this room that would be actively thinking about Suicide. Now, there's a difference, by the way, between not wanting to go on and saying, God, I would be okay if I just didn't wake up in the morning. There's a difference between that and being suicidal. Being suicidal means I actually am thinking about ways in which I might take my life. I'm actually putting a, maybe a plan of action. I'm, I'm, I'm really contemplating how I might make this happen. But whether I'm talking to a group in this room who might have gone through a suicidal season or I'm talking to somebody who's maybe in that other group who just says, I've never been suicidal, but I've just had a lot of moments where I'm like, God, I just don't want to go on. What I need to let you know is you can't stay there. You can't stay there. There's going to be a moment where you're going to have to get up and leave. And by the way, for a person in this room, if there is a person in this room, at some point you go through a time where you really are actively contemplating suicide, what you need to do is you need to get out your phone, you need to dial 911. And you need to do that because if, you are actively com- if you're actively considering suicide, you need help. It is a crisis. It is an emergency. You need to call 911. You say, Jonathan, I don't know what would happen. I know that whatever would happen would be better than what you're thinking about doing. Right? If you're somebody would say, well, you know, I do have those suicidal thoughts, but I don't actually have any intent to, to, um, to act on it, and I have reasons why I would not, you still need to reach out to a trusted friend. Somebody that, you can, somebody that you can trust or reach out to one of us on the pastoral staff, let's put together a plan to help get you in a better place, right? No matter no matter what kind of place you're at on that continuum or somebody that you love is out on that continuum, you can't stay there. There has to be a moment where, and, and by the way, What am I saying about this? Because it's very interesting that a person would tell me, Jonathan, I cannot change my situation. You say you can't stay there, but my financial situation is what it is, or my family situation is what it is. I get that you can't change the situation, but you can change sitting under the broom tree. You can be in a different place, and that's what we're talking about. Fourth message, I have a job for you to do. Right, notice that God has, and, and I'm sure this isn't original to me, but if you have a pulse, you have a purpose. So long as you're alive, God has a job for you to do. Notice that God has him go and anoint Hazael, he has him uh, anoint Jehu, and then he has him anoint Elisha. God's saying, you know, there's work for you to do. It's not time for you to be gone because I have a job for you to do. And and on the heels of that, the fifth message and the last message here is that there are people who need you. He's going to have him anoint Elisha. That's very important because Elisha is going to be Elijah's successor. And Elisha, the Bible tells us, is going to have an even greater influence than Elijah did. But only after a season where Elijah mentors Elisha. His his influence is not just the influence that he had in his lifetime, but his influence is now going to be on others who need him, who their influence is then going to be a generational influence on the people of Israel. He's only seeing that moment when he's asking God to die, he's only seeing that day. And God is seeing the big picture. His, His influence is going to echo throughout the generations. There are people that need him. I've sat across from people in my office. I, I have a, one person in particular that comes to mind who told me, you know, Jonathan, um, if, I, if something were to happen to me, they're using a euphemism for committing suicide, but if something were to happen to me, my wife would be better off, my kids would be better off. That is a lie from the pit of hell. They would not be better off they will not be okay. They will survive, but they will not be okay. I'm telling you, can I just be gut-level honest with you? As a pastor, I have walked up to the casket of people who have committed suicide with their spouse, with their children, and I can tell you firsthand, they are not okay. And that is going to be a part of their trauma life story for the rest of their life. Once we begin to think that there are people that don't need us, we are in a bad place. Your kids need you. Your spouse needs you. Your church needs you. Your neighbors need you. They would rip apart the fabric of those people's world if you decided not to be there anymore. Can I just give you some general guidance? We're a little bit over time, but I just wanna give you a few pieces of general guidance. The Bible says that we are, we are a tripartite, meaning that we are body, soul, and spirit. So if I'm going through this kind of a crisis, the kind that I've been talking about, if I'm going through this kind of crisis, I have to, to deal with it at all three levels. So on the body level, I'm gonna encourage you to talk to your physician because your body is part of this equation, right? You need to tell your physician how you're physically feeling and talk about those things like we talked about, rest, exercise, diet, all those sorts of things. The soul, the, the word soul that is used in the, in the scripture, we, we get the word uh, psychology from it, or the word is, is "suki" for soul. So the soul here is our thoughts, our emotions, what a lot of people would call our mind. So I'm gonna encourage you, you need to talk to your professional counselor on that. And, and over the years I've had people say, now Jonathan, I'm comfortable talking to you, but I'm not comfortable talking to a therapist. And, and a lot of times that's because they feel like if they were to go to a therapist and they were sit down on the couch and they were to work with that counselor, that would be indicating in some way that they're crazy or that they're broken. Well, they're not crazy, but they are broken. And guess what? Welcome to the club, we all are as well. But there are seasons where you need to work with a counselor. I believe firmly that God calls wonderful individuals to the role of being a Christian therapist, and many of them are my friends. So if you're going through this kind of crisis, you probably need that. And by the way, we're happy to help you find a great Christian therapist if that's something you're looking for. My wife and I, this is something that we do every day um, in the office. Okay. Then the third thing, from a spiritual perspective, is you need to talk to God. Did you know there's a whole group of psalms that we call the lament psalms? They're literally prayers to God in the form of crying. God, why haven't you shown up? God, why am I going through this difficult time? God, why is it working out this way instead of this way? It'd be so much easier if you would do this instead of doing what you're doing right now. And never in the scripture does God ever say, don't you talk to me that way. As a matter of fact, there's something about lament, it has a boomerang effect, that you will watch David as he writes in the Psalms, he will go down that road of lament, but there will always be a corner that he turns that says, and yet I know, I know that God is going to be there for me, I know that God is going to support me in the middle of this, and I trust. There is almost a sense in which the human spirit has to go through a lament to God for us to be able to explore both the doubt and the faith say, Jonathan, I'm not good at talking to God out loud or talking to God silently, then get yourself a spiral-bound notebook and start to write out your prayers to God. But somewhere or another, you need to begin to talk to God. Last thing I'll, I'll give you and we'll be done. I'm sorry that I went into overtime. I told you the story about going to the salt mines. And, and like I said, whether you go into one of those caves, the salt mines or whatever, isn't it interesting that when they have that moment, they turn off all the lights, that when they turn on one flashlight... It's almost as impressive what one flashlight does to complete darkness as the complete darkness is. Because we're used to seeing what flashlights do when we're out in the backyard at night. It pretty, seems pretty powerful, but there's also light leaking in from everywhere else. But when there's no light coming from anywhere else and you turn on that little tiny flashlight, isn't it amazing how powerful that light is? And in the moment you realize that the light is more powerful than the darkness. And did you know that's a... That's a concept in scripture. John says this, the light shines, and here this is, a, this is a metaphor for Jesus. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. What does that mean? What I want to tell you as a God follower is this situation that you're in may be bigger than you. It probably is, but the darkness of your situation is not more powerful than the God that resides within you, and the light of God within you can still overcome the darkness that you're facing. What is the point of this message? The point of this message is we want you to know that you're needed. The machinery of God's plan has not stopped because you're in darkness. As a matter of fact, it is probably working more than it was before. God has a plan for you. You were never hopeless. You were never without a future. The God within you is more powerful than the darkness you face. Let's pray. Father, I pray for every person in this room. For those that will use what we've talked about today to support others. For those who need what we talked about today to parse through what they're going through themselves. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room that's really on that edge, that they would reach out for help. And Thank you for the fact that you've given us this life. Help us to honor you with the way that we live it. In Jesus' name.